Good morning, Trinity Bible Church. Well, as any visitors or family that are here for the first time, uh, we are continuing the gospel according to Matthew this morning. We'll be covering chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Um, uh, briefly before uh, we begin, uh, I do have one announcement. We have um, the men's book study uh, that will be beginning in uh, February uh, 11th. It'll be every second and fourth Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. The book is called The Enemy Within, written by Kurt Lundgaard. And uh, it is actually the first of three books built on the theology and writings of John Owen, who was a, a Puritan. And, and so this, these books are very accessible, unlike Owen. And so it's, it's written very easy. There's, it's a very, uh, this book is very, some of the men ha, have, have already read it. Uh, it will ruin you a bit. Um, and it's a book about dealing with your own sin nature and sin in your life. And much like the Masculine Mandate study last year, we would like this to continue in the vein of, of men meeting and reading together uh, with issues that challenge us um, in our Christian walk. And so unlike last time, which was often just Saturday mornings, I do want to offer, because there were men that reached out last year, uh, when we were doing the masculine mandate that they just couldn't make the Saturdays. And so I want to make sure as the one leading it, if you're unable to make a Saturday, I'm more than happy to meet you for coffee, lunch, whatever breakfast it might be to go over um, the reading with you. It is a, it is a excellent book just as masculine mandate is. And I hope many um, will, will both read it and, and show up to the gatherings together. And uh, email will be going out to everyone this week with further details as well as a link to purchase the book. Uh, now after that, uh, now entering um, into our time of, of uh, the Word, I'll be reading from 21, 1 through 11 in the Gospel according to Matthew out loud. After the time of reading, giving you an opportunity to pray silently, uh, asking God the Holy Spirit to, to illuminate your mind to the truth of the Word, Find the places uh, and show you the places perhaps in your life, unrepentant sin, idols that you have placed um, that are in need of being destroyed. And then just ask God to, to show you um, his grace and his, his glory and, and be confronted and comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the time of public worship today and the ministry of the word. After that, I'll pray for us corporately and, and begin the time of, of the word. So reading now from Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, on them, and, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. 
Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of God. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as we the church gather this morning, the elect of Christ, we we come to worship and praise and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, our Redeemer, Sustainer, and Advocate. Lord, we, we have come through these elements of worship together as we've gathered publicly here for the world to see, time set apart not for frivolity or, or comfort or any, anything of, of us. Rather, we've come and reserved this time to gather together for those that are shared in our union with Christ, have been covered by His blood, bound together and sealed by God the Holy Spirit as an adopted family in order to give praise to the one who has saved us. Lord, I pray our worship continues now, coming from prayer and singing praises and now to the word. And Lord, may through the Holy Spirit you illuminate the hearts and minds of your people. May you show us in our lives our need to throw out whatever is in our life that distracts, whatever false things we put before us to worship, the worries of life, the anxieties of life, the fears of life, Lord, through the Holy Spirit in your holy and true word, may you refine your people and turn our affections to Christ that we may follow him and be molded more and more into his image. Lord, we pray for the unbelievers in our midst. We pray 
rather that they would be confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they are sinners. And God's judgment hangs over them. Lord, in Christ calls them to repent of their dead works. Lord, we pray this this morning is such a time that you've set for new life in Christ. We pray now as we continue that all glory goes to your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 Those are the first words. That's well done. (laughs) This passage gives away the whole point of, I believe, what this message is for us today, here at the end. Going all the way to verse 10 and then reverse engineering the passage backwards, if you look at the second half of verse 10 into 11, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? That was the question that Jesus had put before all the audiences that would come and see him and hear him and observe him and hear about him from the moment that we began reading this gospel account until he hangs on a cross. The question is put forward Who is this? We see the answer of the crowds and we see that the answer is wrong. And we talked last week about the crowds and what they what they mean in in, in Matthew's gospel. How it's a kind of a mixed group, depending on the story as it goes, but by and large it's made up of Penitents are people who are following and wondering and perhaps becoming disciples. You have disciples, true believers, who Jesus has chosen for himself. Whether his twelve or those who he has specifically healed and have followed him. And we even see the two blind men preceding this as he's heading into Jerusalem as such a case. He heals them and they follow him. But the crowds are also made up of his adversaries, the Pharisees, the scribes, those who are following and have been following him for three years everywhere he goes in order to make him trip up in some way to prove that he's a false prophet or a false teacher so that they might try and attempt, and especially in the Gospel of John, where they attempt over and over again to kill him, something that they hadn't done for centuries and was, in fact, illegal at this time. So the author of life, the long-awaited one who has fulfilled all prophecy, finds himself at all times not just fulfilling prophecy for the people who many of whom had the words carried with them at all times, he now is finally here, this moment that we've been talking about, as he's made his long Root away from Judea and Jerusalem out to Samaria, and he's making a circle back on the other side of the Jordan, then crosses over and now is back, and he's finally there at Jerusalem. And the disciples have been told he's going there 
now three times told them he's going there to die. In chapter 16, they've already made the profession that they know who he is. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. He's not a prophet. He's not Elijah come again. He's God. And yet most of the people will say, it's a prophet, or a liar, or a madman, or a heretic. But now with this crowd, Jerusalem is before them. And here he goes. And the question will remain, and the question still remains, who is this? If you... Every, every, every time in, in history of the church, the church has had to take stock of itself in light of the culture that it finds itself in. When the church, where they are, whether the church is here and now, or whether it was in the first century, whether it's here and now in the United States, or if it was in the fourth century and it was in Europe, or if it's here and now and it's in China, Or if it was the 17th century and it was the Holy Land. Wherever it is, the church has to go, what do people say in where we are, who is this? And if we're very honest with ourselves, the watering down of the, of the response of the United States, what makes up the citizenry, or the population, or the populace of the culture we live in. The watered-down idea of who Jesus is is predominantly the church's fault. Because when the church begins to accommodate who Jesus is for every conceivable thing that people want accommodations for, well, I don't want a Jesus that tells me I have to stop doing something that I enjoy. And then the church goes, oh, okay, we'll, we'll take that out. And then how do you like that, Jesus? Well, that's way better. Well, that's not Jesus. That's a different religion. And when you begin to sell a different religion that takes away holiness, guess what you've sold them? A ticket to hell. It's not the gospel. So the church in every time in the history of church has had to answer the question and the church has to be honest about who is this? This is the author of life who calls you to perfect holiness and you cannot do it and no one can. Well, I'm pretty good. You're terrible. I don't even know you and I know you're terrible. And that's okay because I know that's humanity. I'm not saying you personally. I'm saying all of us. I don't even, you don't have to know someone to go, I know what you struggle with. You struggle with idolatry. And it may be different from that person right there, but they struggle with idolatry too. They struggle with the idea that something outside of themselves has sovereign rights over them and where they go throughout their life. And by the way, life doesn't end here and now it continues. And you owe someone glory. You owe someone worship, and you've stolen it most of your life. And there's no way for you to pay it back. But guess what? That same author of life 
came into the created order, taking on flesh of that same fallen creature while remaining fully God. Almost 2,000 years ago, would stand on a hill and look down on his city and he would proceed toward his knowing death. Guess why? For your sin, for the cost, for your punishment, and for the curse that was rightly yours. That's who this is. And when you establish who this is and you get this answer, you see this, what we call the triumphal entry. It's written in all of your, your Bibles. Is it? Okay, it wasn't. I appreciate the bold answer. <laughs> but you've now taken away 20 minutes of buildup <laughs> to show you that. The answer was no, because when I ask hypothetical questions, no one answers. That's fine. (laughs) This was not a triumphal entry. (laughs) And we call it that, and yet we're going to see point by point what it means. And the crowds are central to this and Luke's account. In Luke's account, you'll see he even names out the Pharisees amongst the crowd. But let's now look at the text at this time. Again, Jesus has already told the disciples three times, I'm coming back to Jerusalem to die. I'm coming back to Jerusalem to be humiliated. And you're going to see what the crowds want and what the people want, even his disciples want, is a worldly, kingly procession. And this is what kings of the ancient world would do. As a matter of fact, Generals would do this as well. When, the, when Titus, the general, comes back to Rome after destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD, he will have a kingly procession. Even though there's already an emperor by the name of Vespasian, because of his victory, he would come in a chariot and the people would come before him and they would throw cloaks on the ground. They'd throw flowers in front of him. And there'd be trumpet blasts and all these things. And it was to show, here comes the general who is victorious. This was both for for military victory as well as a king returning from some other campaign. They would have these, these monumental celebrations as the king is coming to his kingdom. Don't lose that. And so here, as they, after the healing of the blind men, now Jesus Starting in verse 1, says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now in verses 1 through 4, what you have really is just this this narrative or this, this conversation between Jesus and two disciples. But in it, you have some pretty interesting details. Here he is getting ready to go down to Jerusalem. And he just tells them, go to, go to this place and find these animals and tell the person, 
we want those animals, and they're going to say, and just say, the Lord needs them, and he's going to say, okay. Now, in that is, is just so you understand, as is tied particularly with, with the retelling of Matthew, retelling a, part, a portion of Zechariah 14, and what it happens when the king is coming to, to Jerusalem, and we'll read that, you'll see that really the details leading up are like, this is a moment that was determined to happen in the exact manner that was to happen to show who Christ was, meaning a superintended action by almighty providential creator. So whoever this unnamed, unknown individual was who had these animals at every moment, every time in history was put there for the purpose of one thing. Meeting two random disciples right outside of Jerusalem who said, give me your animals for free. And he said, okay. So God's sovereignty is bringing Jesus to this point as it comes to this text that is quoted. I'm going to turn back to Zechariah 14. I'm, I'm going to read through a bunch of it. It's just a small portion that's, that's quoted, but I'm going to read it just entirety for, for purposes of, of this morning. And you can turn there if you want to. Um, otherwise, you can just listen. Starting in verse 1 in chapter 14 of Zechariah. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered. The women assaulted. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. You shall flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, from the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel and the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited, and there shall never again be a decree for utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouth. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other and Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in those camps. 
when everyone who survives all the nations that come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the feasts of booths. And if any family of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of the host, there should be no rain on them. And the families of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there should be no rain. There should be no the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. There shall be a punishment to Egypt and a punishment to all the nations who do not go up and keep the Feast of the Booths. And on that day, holy will be holy to the Lord, and the pots of the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls of the altar, and every pot in Judah shall be holy to the Lord. I just realized that I went to the wrong page. I put you all through that spectacularly. Well, I don't embarrass easily. And sadly, I'm not even embarrassed right now. Someone's whispering something to me. Nine. See, I have that. But I thought I'd read 14 to you as well. <laughs> you know what ruins you? When you, when you never, when you write, so, so now I give away, and we can pause this if we want to, and I'm going to redeem, redeem my time like a, like a politician. But this is random scribblings. This isn't sermon notes. And every once in a while, I'll write something on there. The, the sermon itself is a manuscript that's memorized. That's how I was trained. But every once in a while, I'll write something down. And then I'll look at it, and every time, Bo knows this, it messes me up. And for some reason, I have Zechariah 14 down here. When I know it's 9... But now you've read 14, and now you know my weakness and my sermon preparation and its weaknesses. <laughs> Down there. 9-9. Nine, nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This goes on an even more touching example. But, but what we have here is, is, again, as in throughout the rest of this gospel and all of the gospel accounts, this need for Jesus to show proof, if you will, that he, you could answer the question appropriately when asked, who is this? Is this the prophet returned? No. Is this someone like Moses? No. No, we know it is transfiguration. Elijah, the prophet, and Moses come to see him. 
They approach him as one who is a superior and the disciples get to see it and they're awed by it. No, this one's greater than the greatest figures of Israel's history. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah and any of the prophets and any of the kings. In fact, pick the best of them and he's the ultimate fulfillment of what they themselves were looking forward to. And in that, he's moving through these these areas to where he's fulfilling scripture. And here is this one that was such a warning to the people. How is the king going to come? How is he going to arrive in Jerusalem? It's not going to be in an impressive steed. He's not going to be before a procession of an army. He's not going to be riding in a chariot. He's not going to be holding and, and carrying trophies behind him of his defeated enemies. Rather, he's going to be coming meekly and humbly, as it says in Zechariah, as Christ's entire ministry has been forward as one of humility. Have you ever seen a donkey? Have you ever ridden one? I see some nods. I, the country people, that's me. I grew up like that, just as a dare. They're not beautiful, they're not big, they're not majestic, they're angry. If you want to see something crazy, I shouldn't even say this. On YouTube, there's a video (laughs) somewhere in the world where a person is using a donkey to protect its herd of animals. The video shows a donkey grab a hyena by the back of the head and just start Charlie Browning it up and down on the ground and just wailing on it. And you're like, what? And then the whole thing, like the comments like, oh yeah, donkeys kill all kinds of like wolves, coyotes. Like, wow, who knew? Donkeys are not something that the world looks for when a king is coming to claim his people. And that's part of the problem. When the question is asked throughout the gospel and throughout your life and in every culture and every time since the beginning of the church, asking, who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is this Messiah? And if you want to turn him into something that he's not, you've got the wrong Jesus. He didn't need to come majestically on some beautiful chariot. You want to know why? Because that wasn't the reason he was here the first time. You want to see a majestic entrance of a king? Wait till he comes back. Then the world will see. And for those who have denied him, it'll be too late. Because when he comes, everyone will bow. Everyone will be forced to proclaim He is the one. Who is this? God Almighty. And when he cracks the sky open and ushers in a new heavens and a new earth and a new creation, there will be no more question of who is this? And so Jesus is taking his place here in this procession. The crowd is before him. The crowd is behind him. And he's going to proceed on a small, unattractive, angry donkey. 
And the purpose of it is not to draw attention to the physical way in which he appears, much in line with Isaiah 53, humbled, mounted on a donkey. In verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, meaning they laid the cloaks on their back. And he sat on them. Now most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that following him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now when we read this, when we look at it, People call it the triumphal entry. Look at all these people shouting adulation and worship to Jesus. And the disciples were in the crowds. And in Luke's account, the disciples are shouting these things. And the Pharisees tell Jesus, rebuke your students. So if you're, you're a careful reader, you know, as he's proceeding, the crowds that I've talked about before, which are like kind of a mixed bag of just people who are wanting to see spectacle or people who are maybe wondering about Jesus. Then you have true believers, which is a very small portion. Then you have actual adversaries. So imagine he's on the donkey. He's proceeding. They know the scriptures. The Pharisees know this scripture. They know it's Zechariah 9 and not 14. And so they're going forward. And they, as he's proceeding, they're right there with him, at least close enough to go, hey, they're shouting out, messianic titles to him. Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Rebuke your students, Jesus of Nazareth. In the account of Luke, you have the famous response. If I silence them, the stones will cry out. Letting them know, like, I am the king. It didn't matter in the sense that the crowd itself was just essentially a mass of people that often see when crowds start doing things. I covered this last week. We have true believers. You have adversaries. And you have the rest that are like along for the ride. Oh, what are we doing? Oh, what's happening? Notice the order. Everyone starts throwing their cloaks on the ground and shouting stuff. And then people are like, what's happening? Hosanna, what's happening? Who is it? Oh, it's Jesus, the prophet. Oh, it's like, have you ever been in a situation where you're, say, at a children's production and six-year-olds get up and they sing or they do something and, and you're like, ouch. But yet, the applause that comes out of the crowd. And then someone stands up. And you're like, certainly not. You're doing this. I mean, they're kids. They get brave. Um, but all the bats are now coming because they don't know. They think they're being communicated with. And then another person stands up. And then everyone stands up. And they're clapping is so loud, and you're trying to go, did we see the same thing? <laughs> and then because you're sitting, now they're looking at you. <laughs> the people behind you are looking at you, but now that you've been sitting, you're like, I'm not standing up now. I can't stand up now. I'm not giving in. No way. 
And so you just keep going. It was, it was tolerable. <laughs> and then when your daughter asks you later, why are you the only one who didn't stand? And you say, because truth matters. <laughs> but the ease with which the crowd, the ease with which the, 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 the irony can't be lost in how this whole event takes place. If they really believed Jesus was the king, if they really believed he was coming to serve and be Messiah, if they really knew what the disciples knew, what they'd been told, the wisdom they'd been given by God in, in chapter 16, is what Jesus tells Peter, it was, it was God who gave you this knowledge that I'm the Messiah. If they really knew that, they would have done the same thing that Jesus did when he arrives in Luke's account. He weeps at the state of Jerusalem. Jesus' procession to Jerusalem is not triumphant in the way that the world and the crowd thought it was. It was about to be triumphant, but this was a procession that should have been one of lamentation. Lamentation for the sin and the brokenness of the people. Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's fulfilling prophecy. The sinless son of God. Knowing that he's going to suffer. Knowing that he's going to die as a criminal. For the sake of these same people. Who in a very few days. Instead of shouting Hosanna to the highest. Will shout crucify him and the disciples who know will scatter in the wind and he'll be on a cross dying a criminal's death while no crime was committed mocked, spit on robbed all for the sake of those who the Father had given to him. This lamentful entry is meant to be seen in the eyes of what brokenness What place had we come to that this was the only way? The author of life will die for your crimes and mine. That's the glory of the gospel. The way that you can't reconcile it not logically the only way you can reconcile it is is believing that grace the grace you're able to have on someone or the mercy you're able to have someone even in the most best day that you have the most best the best day that you have it can't even compare to even come to any kind of understanding of the mercy and grace of God on the sinful person who he who he chose in eternity past with full knowledge of who you are and what you will do and what you will think. And all of this, Christ 
claimed you on the cross. And now you're robed in his righteousness. And so as the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and they cut branches and they shouted, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they entered Jerusalem and the whole city was stirred. And now the scene is really before us. This procession has happened. The people are walking, watching on the walls. The main gates are open and he comes in and now the city, which is alive because the Passover is here. And so Jews from all over Rome are there. The Roman world are there, and here he comes, and they're like, yeah, who is he? It's the prophet. He's healed some people. I heard he raised the dead. There were guys with leprosy that don't have any more. They claim he did it. He he must be a prophet. Oh. In this kingly, lamentful procession, Jesus is going to, we'll see next week, the first thing he's going to do is take the expectations of who he was and literally turn the tables on that. He's come to call judgment on this place. Jerusalem is going to be a place of God's judgment on unbelief, not the place where the king walks in and sits back on the throne and they rule over the other nations as those nations have ruled over them. It's not the physical kingdom that they're all waiting for, the physical kingdom where Israel just rules over the other nations like they've always been ruled over. No, it's the physical kingdom that's to come where all are going to be blessed to be inhabitants because God the Most High sits on the throne with the river of life and the glory of God and all the knowledge of who God is will be evident to those who inhabit that new heavens and that new earth. That's the kingdom that Christ is calling his people to. And until such a time, until we receive that kingdom, we're here in this kingdom. This fallen kingdom. Mightily equipped by the Holy Spirit and the word and the fellowship of the saints using our gifts to lift one another up so that when anyone in any situation at any time, comes before us, you have the opportunity to answer the question or present the answer of, who is this? He's Jesus Christ. He's the author of life. He's God Almighty. He created you. He died for the sins of his people, and you need to call on his name. He is Christ the Redeemer. He is not one God amongst many. He is not a prophet. He's not a good teacher. He's not your homeboy. He's not any of those things. He is Creator God. He's Redeemer God. He's Sustainer God. And one day he will return in his proper kingly procession 
that the whole world will recognize this is the one. Who is this? God Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its challenges. We thank you for its comfort. Lord, may the church, may those who are in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, may we come to reckon with areas in our life through this account of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did not receive the glory he was owed. Rather, he took our punishment. He did not receive the reverence owed to him. Rather, he took our curse. He did not receive the adulation of of the faithful, but rather he received the cries of condemnation from unbelief. the second person of the Trinity, the one true Son of God, who is our Redeemer, our Sustainer, our Example, our Advocate before the Father, our King. And one day He will call us home and He will receive the proper glory, reverence, and praise due His name. Until such a time, may we seek His face in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.